Mr. Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our last class, as our brother Alex has reminded us, we finished with the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ and the voice from heaven proclaiming him to be the beloved Son of God in whom he was well pleased. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 23, Luke comments about the age of the Lord Jesus Christ when this took place. And we read in that 23rd verse, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Now the diaglot renders that verse somewhat differently. It renders the first part in this way. And he, Jesus, was about 30 years old when he began, and put in brackets, his work. So it's not telling us that verse, he's not telling us that, the, that, that he just suddenly began to be about 30 years of age, but that he was about 30 years of age when he began. That is, when he began his work or his ministry. It's really quite interesting that he was 30 years of age when he began his work because when we go back to the law of Moses and the shadows and the types that were contained therein we learn from the fourth chapter of the book of Numbers that a Levite, the Levites before they were to enter the work of actually dismantling transporting and re-erecting the tabernacle had to be 30 years of age. For instance, Numbers chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3. Uh, he says, Take the sum of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi after their families by the house of their fathers. From 30 years old and upwards, even until 50 years old, all that enter into the house to do the work in the tabernacle of the congregation. And he goes on then to show how the three families of the Levites were assigned different duties in the dismantling, transporting and re-erecting of the tabernacle. Actually, Numbers chapter 8 tells us that a Levite would enter into the charge or the service at the age of 25. But it wasn't until he was 30 years of age that he was able to enter into the host to do the work in the tabernacle, the heavy work of carrying the tabernacle. And that word host there in, in verse 3 is a word which carries the meaning of an army. So it indicated that it was a military service. We find that word used of each of the uh, three divisions of the families of the, um, of the, of the Levites. In verse 23, the work is transformed, is translated to perform. It's the same word as host. All that enter in to, to perform or enter into the host uh, uh, to, to, do the, to do the work and so forth. Uh, in verses 30, 39, 35, 39 and 43, the word has been translated service. But nevertheless, it shows that it was a uh, it was a military, um, a military service they were entering into. They were warring the warfare of Yahweh in that tabernacle. When we go over to the 8th chapter of the book of Daniel and at verse 11, we find the word appears again. And it's in that verse it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it speaks of him as the prince of the host. And there's the Lord Jesus Christ the prince of the host. So just as those Levites labouring in the tabernacle, carrying that tabernacle through the wilderness, were the army of Yahweh, so the Lord Jesus Christ is the captain of Yahweh's army. And when we come over to the New Testament, of course, we find that not only is the Lord Jesus Christ the captain of Yahweh's army in that sense, but we find the Lord Jesus Christ is the antitypical tabernacle. And so we find that, that the Lord Jesus Christ commenced his work 
at 30 years of age in the same way that those Levites entered into the warfare of Yahweh at the age of 30. It was work which called for the strength of a fully matured man. And the work that the Lord Jesus Christ had entered upon at this time was work that was going to demand a fully matured man. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, was 30 years old when he commenced his work. And it is this day, starting in verse 23, that Luke introduces the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. One might ask the question, why does Luke introduce him here? Why didn't he put it back at the time of his birth? Why didn't he start his gospel with the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why wait till Christ is 30 years of age, he's been baptised, he's about to commence his work, and then he gives his genealogy? Luke, I believe, introduces it here because Luke is formally introducing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he commences his consideration of the work and ministry of Christ, he first of all sets about to establish his qualifications as the Redeemer of mankind. And here in this genealogy, Luke establishes that Christ is the Son of Man. And tracing his genealogy from son to father right back to Adam, he shows that the Lord Jesus Christ is, a, is fitly qualified to be the Redeemer of all sons of Adam, Jew and Gentile alike. Luke was writing primarily for Gentiles and he shows that the Lord Jesus Christ is qualified to be a representative of Gentiles as well as Jews because his genealogy goes right back to Adam. I believe Luke's objective in giving this genealogy is to establish that Christ is the Son of Man. In Luke's Gospel, the term the Son of Man repeatedly appears. I think it appears some 26 times in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is presenting Christ as a man, a son of Adam, or in other words, the promised seed of the woman. Because although he traces his genealogy back to Adam, he has shown that he was born of a virgin without the aid of a human father. He was produced by divine intervention and therefore was that son of God that was promised back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The seed of the woman whom Yahweh would produce by divine intervention. And so Luke presenting him as the seed of the woman establishes the, the divine intervention that took place in his birth and then through Mary he traces that genealogy back to Adam. Back in the last verse of the chapter, the very last words of the chapter, when he gets back to Adam, he, go, he goes right back to Adam, he says, which was the Son of God. And it was God that produced Adam by a divine act, acting upon the dust of the ground. He brought Adam into existence. And so Adam is styled here the Son of God. But the Lord Jesus Christ likewise is produced, presented in Luke as a son of God. You see the words of verse 22, the voice from heaven. Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So Adam was the first son of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ is a son of God, by divine begetting. So Luke is presenting the Lord as the second Adam. There was the first Adam, which was created by Yahweh. There was the second Adam, which was begotten by Yahweh and produced as a son of God. As the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ becomes the beginning of a new creation. Just as the first Adam was the beginning of this creation, so the second Adam is the beginning of the new creation. 
just as we know from the writings of Paul in Romans and Corinthians, in Adam all die, because the first Adam brought death into the world. But in the second Adam, or the Lord Jesus Christ, all will be made alive, because the second Adam brought life and immortality to life. Now Luke, as we said, traces the genealogy through Mary. Where in verse, uh, verse 23 we read, being as supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. We do not believe that Joseph was the son of Heli in a literal sense. But actually the literal Greek there in, in all of these cases, instead of reading Joseph, which was the son of Heli, it merely reads, Joseph, which was of the Heli. And so he identifies Joseph as a member of Heli's family. Now we believe that the genealogy of Matthew, which we will look at in a few moments, traces the genealogy of Joseph and shows how Joseph's father was actually a man called Jacob. But we believe that Heli was the father of Mary. But because Joseph married Mary and so became the son-in-law of Heli, he could be described as of the Heli. He was of Heli's family because he was married to Heli's daughter. And so this genealogy, we believe, is traced through Mary, back to Adam. And we don't want to get involved in any great technicalities or details about these genealogies. But there is one or two interesting features that we do want to look at. It's quite interesting that if we go from this genealogy and we count the Lord Jesus Christ as number one, and we include Joseph because Joseph represents that generation there, if we start with Jesus Christ as number one and we count through this list of names and we come down to God at the end of verse 38, we find that God is number 77 in the list. There are 77 names in that genealogy. 77, of course, is a multiple of seven, which is a very significant number in the word of God. And now in other parts of scripture we're told that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. So now that gives us a, a scriptural indication of how we should count these generations from Adam to Christ. Enoch was number seven. Now to get Enoch number seven, we count Adam as number one, Seth number two, Enoch number three, Canaan, uh, Malil, Jared, and Enoch number seven. So that's the scriptural way in which we're supposed to count the generation of this genealogy. Recognising, of course, that with every man's name, there was a woman involved. For instance, when we read that Adam produced Seth, we know that Adam didn't produce Seth on his own. It was Adam and Eve that produced Seth, and it was Seth and his wife that produced Enoch, and so on and so forth. Now, when we count through in that way the female descent, the females that were involved up to the production of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that Mary was number 75. She was the 75th woman from Eve. There was no man involved in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that means that the son that Mary produced was the 75th male from Adam. So there were 75, the 75th male from Adam was the Lord Jesus Christ. That number 75 is quite interesting really because it's made up of the multiples of 5 times 5 times 3. And each of those numbers is very significant in the word of God. The number 5, for instance, as we're all well aware, is the number of grace. And 5 times 5 is grace multiplied. And number three is a number which is repeatedly associated with resurrection. So here's grace multiplied and manifested through a resurrection. And how interesting when we find that the 75th male from Adam 
was the Lord Jesus Christ. A man who in John chapter 11 and verse 25 could say, I am the resurrection and the life. Here was a man who was the resurrection and the life because all life and resurrection comes through him. And he was number 75 from Adam. And there's the grace of Yahweh multiplied toward man in, in the, in, through the resurrection that was, was made possible through this 75th male from Adam. Because the 75th female from Eve was Mary who produced the Lord Jesus Christ and so through the mediumship of her by divine intervention the resurrection and the life was made possible. You see the first Adam as we have noted brought death but the second Adam brings life through the grace of Yahweh. And so you see there are interesting features about these genealogies. And there we wish to leave the genealogy of Luke. And we go across to the book of Matthew. We find that in Matthew another genealogy is given of the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in verses um, 1 to, to 17 of, of this first chapter of Matthew we find another genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ given. We know this that it differs somewhat from the genealogy of Luke. We believe the reason for that is that, that, that Matthew's objective was somewhat different to that of Luke. Luke was presenting the Lord as the Son of Man, the Redeemer of all sons of Adam who will come under him in the right way. And so he took his, his genealogy right back to Adam. But Matthew is writing more particularly for Jewish people. He's writing for the Jews. And his objective is to establish that Jesus of Nazareth is the rightful heir to David's throne and the rightful heir to the land of Palestine that was covenanted to Abraham and his seed. So you see, he starts his genealogy in verse 1 the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he immediately identifies the Lord Jesus Christ with the two great covenants of promise that had particular relation to the, nation, to the land of Israel and the throne of David. And he's establishing that Jesus of Nazareth was the rightful heir to those things. Now we find as we look at this genealogy uh, it differs somewhat from Luke. From David onward he gives a different uh, line of names. Coming down in, uh, in verse 16 we read And Jacob begat Joseph the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. Now we believe that this is the genealogy of Jacob, uh, not of Jacob, of Joseph. Uh, as, as Luke's genealogy was of Mary, so this is the genealogy of Joseph. And he traces Joseph's line back through the royal line of kings back to David. And establishing that the Lord Jesus Christ as the adopted son of Joseph was the legal heir to the throne of David. He had a legal claim upon that throne because he could trace his genealogy back to the royal line, back to David. Now as we look at this as a genealogy, it, there are certain peculiarities about it. Now we listed some of these upon this sheet. First of all, we've got a little correction to make upon the sheet, the first peculiarity that we've listed here is the omission of three kings from the line. In actual fact, there are four kings omitted from the line. There are three kings, as we shall see, in one group, and there is another king uh, on his own a little later. So that should read the omission of four kings 
from the light. So that's a, 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 an unusual thing to find in a genealogy. When we compare it with the genealogy in First of Chronicles, we find that those names are listed in the genealogies there. Matthew has admitted them for some reason or other. Other peculiarities about this uh, genealogy are the fact that Matthew mentions four women. That's most unusual. See, Luke goes right back from father, son to father, right back to Adam, and he doesn't mention a woman anywhere. And that would be the normal way of dealing with a genealogy. But Matthew departs from that, and he mentions four women in this genealogy. That's unusual for a genealogy. Not only does he mention four women, but three times through this uh, genealogy, he mentions the brethren of those through whom the line is traced. Again, that's most unusual to find in a genealogy. You know, it, 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 it's got nothing to do really with the, with the uh, descent of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Matthew goes to the trouble of mentioning three times in there here, mentioning the brethren of those through whom the line is traced. We find another peculiarity perhaps is the division of this genealogy into three parts. In verse 17 we read, So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. From David until the carrying away to Babylon are fourteen generations. From the carrying away to Babylon unto Christ are fourteen generations. So we find the equal division of this into three sections of fourteen generations is another peculiarity of this genealogy. Let's take these points one at a time and see, see if we can see why it is that Matthew has uh, included these peculiarities in this genealogy. First of all we take the mention of four women. He mentions four particular women. He mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba. And each of those, we believe, is included because it has a particular message for the ecclesia of God. Each one of those, in some way or other, types the ecclesia and types the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two of these, two of these four, and probably three of them, were Gentiles. Rahab and Ruth were certainly Gentiles. Tamar was probably a Gentile, so she could have been of the descendants of Abraham. We don't really know where she came from or what she was. She was probably a Gentile, though she could have been of, the, uh, of a related family to the family of Judah. But at any rate, two of them are Gentiles. So you see, as we go back to the genealogy here, the royal line of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that Gentiles are included in that genealogy. Showing that even as the rightful heir to David's throne and the rightful heir to the land of Palestine, the Lord Jesus Christ could even there represent Gentiles because Gentiles are included in his genealogy. And they've been embraced and, and engrafted into the uh, nation of Israel. Now as we look at these women one at a time, just very briefly, first, the first mention of a woman is in verse 3. And Judas begat Phares and Zara of Tamar. And there's the mention of Tamar. Now the name Tamar means a palm tree and we read of her in the 38th chapter of the book of Genesis. We're probably all familiar with the story how she uh, um, obtained, uh, how she came to be with child and produced the twins, Phares and Zara of Judah. We're probably familiar with how Judah first of all took her as a wife for his firstborn son for Yahweh smote her, his firstborn son, dead because of his wicked wife. So Tamar was given to Onan, the next son of Judah. And Onan likewise was a, was a, was a, a wicked man. 
And Yahweh was displeased with him and smote him dead also. And so Judah sent her back to her father's house that she might, until the time that his younger son, Shelah, was grown up. And then he said he would give her, give her to him that he might raise up seed to his dead brother. But Judah omitted to do that. That was her legal right that it should be done. But Judah omitted to do it. But by her determination and perseverance, Tamar obtained what was her legal right and preserved the line of Judah and produced, uh, and, and by that determination and perseverance, she obtained a place in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although the very act that she did in playing the harlot is something that is not, uh, uh, not, not, not encouraged by the word. It is something that is discouraged, something is marked out as wrong. Nevertheless, Judah himself acknowledged that Tamar was more righteous than he because he was the one that was at fault. And Tamar was more righteous than he. And so you see, although Tamar was mistreated by Judah, by determination she obtained her legal right. And so she continued the, royal, the, the line of Judah down to the royal line of David. She was obviously a woman of faith. She saw the significance of the covenant nation. She saw the importance of producing that seed. And moved by faith and determination, she obtained the seed that she sought. And so a new, uh, uh, the, the family of Judah was continued and she produced the line that ultimately led to David and the royal line of the king. And so there's a woman of faith and determination. The next woman is mentioned in verse 5. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab. And there's a mention of Rahab. Because we know the story of Rahab from the book of Joshua. Rahab, by her faith, although she was a Gentile, and a Gentile of an immoral way of life in the construction of Jericho, but she became elevated in Israel, becoming a member of the royal line of Judah. And so there was a woman, a Gentile, a Gentile of an immoral way of life, but she embraced the hope of Israel, she was moved by faith, her faith was perfected by work, and she found a place in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third woman is mentioned likewise in that fifth verse. And Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. And we know how Ruth was brought into Israel by a special act of providence. She was a Gentile, a Moabite but she was brought into the orbit of the truth by a special act of providence and accepting the truth and embracing it, being moved by faith, she became the humble handmaid of which we read in the book of Ruth. And so here again was a Gentile moved by faith that came in, in, embraced into the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth woman we read of in verse 6. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Her name isn't mentioned but it's Bathsheba. Her who had been the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba means the daughter of the oath. And although she manifested weakness and although her and David became involved in one of the greatest acts of human weakness recorded on the pages of the word of God. Nevertheless, she overcame. And, he became embraced into the, and she became the mother of the royal line of David. And it's interesting to note that both genealogies of Matthew and Luke both go back through Bathsheba. Because as, as, as Joseph's line comes down through Solomon, so uh, Mary's line came down through Nathan which we learn from the first of Chronicles 3 verse 5, was also a son of Bathsheba. 
You know, as we look at this, as it's written here, David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. You know, Matthew makes no endeavour there to cover up what David had done. He could easily have said David begat Solomon and Solomon got, begot Rehoboam and so forth. And it would just read over and he'd take no notice of it. But he draws particular attention to the fact that David begat Solomon from, from her who had been the wife of Uriah. Drawing attention to the great act of human weakness and all the, the things involved. But all that was forgiven. It was all overlooked. It was all forgiven. And from those two people came the royal line of Judah which was to lead to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom all sins will be forgiven. And I believe that, that Matthew includes that in, in that verse 6 in the way that he does to show the saving power that's invested in the Lord Jesus Christ and how he's able to cover and forgive the sins of those who approach him rightly. Now, and as we put these two genealogies together, and we have these sons, Solomon and Nathan, it shows us something of the tremendous character of David. You know, it was Nathan the prophet that was sent to rebuke David because of the great sin that he had committed. You know, we read of other kings in the, in the, in the uh, Bible records that when they were rebuked by prophets, they shut them up in prison or had them killed. But David honoured that prophet in that he named one of the sons that he produced from Bathsheba, named him after that prophet, and he honoured that prophet in his own family by naming one of his sons after him. And it shows us something of the tremendous character of the man David. So much then for the four women. We see the different aspects of the Ecclesia of God, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's probably possible to see in this a reflection of the faces of the cherubim. In Tamar, that is the woman by, who by determination obtained her wrath. We see the characteristics of the lion. In Rahab, who was lifted right above her pathway of life and elevated in Israel by faith, we can see the reflection of the, of the eagle. In Ruth, the faithful, humble handmaid. We see the ox, the servant. And in Bathsheba, the one who fell through human weakness, we see the human aspect, the man. And we find that another peculiarity of this genealogy is the mention of brethren. For instance, in verse 2 we read, uh, uh, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Well, what's his brethren got to do with his genealogy? It's got nothing to do with it. They don't enter into the genealogy at all. But of course his brethren were the other 11 tribes of Israel. And he's uniting here Judah and his brethren together as one. So he's showing that the Lord Jesus Christ was the king, not of Judah only, but the king of Israel. And he could rightly represent a whole twelve tribes of Israel because all those twelve tribes of Israel sprung from Jacob. So I believe he, he, he includes the brethren for that reason, to unite all Israel together as one. And no one tribe could make exclusive claims on the Lord Jesus Christ. We find in verse 3, he says, Judas begat Phares and Zara. They were twins. Now, Zara had nothing to do with the genealogical, genealogical line here. But he's mentioned here because of the special circumstances that surrounded the birth of these twins. You see, by all normal course of events, Zara would have been the firstborn. The fact there in Genesis 38, it revealed how Zara, his hand appeared first, and the, the, um, the nurse tied a scarlet cord around his hand to mark him out as the firstborn. 
But then his hand was drawn back and his brother falls out first. So Fares broke forth, supplanting his brother and becoming the firstborn in Judah's family. But it was only by a special act of providence that that was done. And Fares, the line of Zara, uh, came there, we trace it down, we come to Achan, the troubler of Israel. But we trace through the line of Fares, and we come through, through Boaz to David, uh, and on to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Fares was one who broke forth. His name means a breach or a break forth. Fares broke forth uh, from all, all, opposite, all the uh, obstacles he became the firstborn, Judah's firstborn, he established a fruitful family in Israel and provided the royal line. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the family of the human race was a younger son. But he brushed aside all opposition, he broke forth in the shackles of flesh and he will establish a fruitful family in Israel and the royal and, and, and will establish the royal family in the kingdom of God. So I believe in, in the birth of Pharaoh and Sarah, we see a little foreshadowing of these events. And that's why Matthew includes them there. Now down in verse 11 is the third place where we find brethren mentioned. And Josiah begat Jeconiah, Jeconiah and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Again, Matthew unites all his brethren together, pointing out that they were carried away to Babylon. The point here is that it was only by special acts of providence, as it were, that that family were preserved at all. It would be normal for in, in, in ancient times when a nation was, was overthrown and carried away captive for the royal family to be obliterated altogether. But by a special act of providence, even though Jeconiah and his brethren were all carried away to Babylon, the royal line was preserved. It was preserved right down to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ was to be born. And so he's showing that the Lord Jesus Christ was produced by a special act of providence. The providence of Yahweh watching over his sin and, and, and developing that royal line and it, and, until finally the Lord Jesus Christ could be born. Now we find that four kings are omitted uh, in verses uh, verse 8. We find that three kings are omitted in verse 8. Uh, in verse 8 we read, Azza begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begat Ozias or Uzziah. But between Joram and Uzziah, there should be Ahaziah, Johath, Joash, and Amaziah. And those are included in the genealogy of 1 Chronicles 3, verses 11 to 12. In verse 11, we find that Jehoiakim is omitted between Josiah and Jeconiah. Although uh, Jehoiakim was a, a very evil king, nevertheless he was the father of Jeconiah. Josiah wasn't. He is omitted there. So those four kings are omitted. We find that, that each of those kings was a, a, a bad king. Amaziah was the, the uh, better of all of them. It's said that he did that which was right in Yahweh's eyes, but not with a perfect heart. Of the other three, they were all evil. Ahaziah and Joash uh, walked in the ways of Ahab. Joash, after the death of Jehoiada, slew the priests, the sons of Jehoiada. Possibly these are the reasons why Matthew excludes them from the line. And just as he has shown in this line the forgiveness that is available to the likes of David and Bathsheba, so he shows that the Lord Jesus—that that is the principle of being taught. But the exclusion of those four establishes the division of this genealogy into its three divisions of 14 generations. Now this is a characteristic thing of Jewish writing, to fix a thing in memory. By the repeating of this 14 generations, it fixes certain things in the memory. For instance, you can read through this genealogy and you 
you, you possibly wouldn't remember any of the nine. Very few of the nine. But you see, there's three things that do come out. There are four things that do sit, are fixed in the mind. You have Abraham, David, the captivity, and Christ. And those, those are four key points that Matthew is, is uh, emphasising in this genealogy. It's Abraham, David, the captivity, and Christ. And with the presentation of this genealogy in that way, those things are clearly fixed in the mind. Abraham and David, of course, were associated with the great covenants of promise. David was associated with the establishment of the kingdom. The captivity saw the end of the kingdom. And of course, Christ is the promise of the restoration of the kingdom. Now, 14 is made up of 2 times 7. 7 is the number for the covenant. Plus 2 is a number which is often used to represent Jew and Gentile. It's a number that crops up in various places in the scripture. Back in the book of Genesis we read of Jacob serving 14 years for his two wives, representing the two, two, two seeds of Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 1, we read that after the destruction of Solomon's temple at Jerusalem, it was 14 years before Ezekiel got the vision of a glorious house of prayer for all nations that will be built at Jerusalem. The Passover was always to be kept on the 14th day of the month. And Christ of course becomes the Passover lamb for Jews and Gentile alike. From the Feast of Tabernacles, on every day of those seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, 14 lambs were offered for a burnt offering. That feast which foreshadowed the great ingathering of Jews and Gentiles in covenant relationship with Yahweh. And so possibly the 14 generations direct our attention to the, to, to the covenants of Yahweh, which are for Jew and Gentile alike for those who accept them upon the right basis. Now leaving then those two genealogies of Matthew and Luke, we find that Mark gives us no genealogy at all. Mark is the one that, that presents the Lord Jesus Christ as a servant. And he is concerned only with the actual work that was accomplished. For him, the genealogy of the one performing the work was of no importance. A, 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 a servant's genealogy counts for nothing anyway. So Mark gets straight on with the work of recording the actual work that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. So that brings us to the Gospel of John. Now it may appear upon the surface that John gives no genealogy either. But that is not the case. John does give a genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But his is the divine genealogy, giving us the origin of his character. John wrote his Gospel primarily for believers. And therefore, perhaps, it is John's genealogy that is of the most interest to us. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is qualified to be redeemer uh, of, of any son of Adam that approaches him in the right way. We accept him as the, the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. But what we want to know is how and what he manifested the glorious character that he did. And that is the question that John answers for us. In the first verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John takes us right to the very beginning. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The beginning he speaks of is quite obviously the beginning of this creation. The beginning of the Adamic creation. That's the beginning he's got in mind. Now he says, in the beginning was the Word. 
What's the significance of that? I think it's Brother Thomas tells us, and he's a very, very beautiful section on this, this section of the scripture in Eureka Volume 1, around pages 1991. We've got two small extracts upon the sheet. Concerning the word logos, firstly, Brother Thomas writes, this word signifies the outward form by which the inward thought is expressed and made known. Also the inward thought or reason itself, so that the word comprehends both the ideas of reason and speech. Now that's the definition of the Greek word logos, which is here translated word. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and that's what it means. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now Brother Thomas writes on page 91 of Eureka Volume 1 concerning the relationship that existed between God and the Word. Because this may be illustrated by the relation of reason or intelligence and speech to brain. As affirmed in the proposition, no brain, no thought, reason or intelligence. Call the brain theos, that is God, it's the Greek word for God, call the brain theos and the thought, reason and understanding intelligently expressed logos and the relation and dependence of theos and logos in John's use of the term may readily be considered. There is a very practical little illustration of the, of the meaning of, of John 1 verses 1 and 2. He shows how he puts God in the analogy in the position of the brain and he puts the logos in the position of the thought, the reasoning and the expressions that come forth from that brain. He says if we can understand that, if you take the brain away obviously you've got no thoughts left. If there's no thoughts, well the brain must be dead. So that there's the essential relationship between the two. And if we can understand that little analogy, and we've got, the, got what John is talking about in the first two verses. You see, in the, there was God and his thoughts and his plan and his purpose. That was where everything started, in God's mind, in his thoughts, in his plan and his purpose. And that plan and purpose became expressed in words. That's what John is telling us. And so he says, the same was in the beginning with God. That's the logos, the word, the plan and the purpose of God. Now in verse 3 he says, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now that becomes a little confusing as it stands in our version. It's rendered much better in the diagram. It says, through it everything was done. And without it, not even one thing was done which has been done. You see, he's showing us that the, what's rendered him in our version shouldn't be him at all, it should be it, it's in the news agenda. It should be it, and the it is the Logos or the Word. So that God and the Word were united in one, his brain, his related to thought, and there was nothing made that was made Nothing at all has been done that has been done without the, 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 the plan, the, the revealed plan and purpose of God. The thoughts that have come forth out of his mind. So everything has been done in accordance with that, that plan that God thought up in his mind and has expressed through his word. Verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, he's the dialogue that, that, that puts that correctly. In it was life. And the life was the life of men. In it, in the word. In God's re revealed purpose. The expression of his thoughts and his reasons. In that was life. And life was the light of men. You see, we go back to the beginning. God brought the, the, the creation into existence by his spoken word as you read in Genesis. He spoke and it was done. 
So we find that, that Adam and Eve sinned and sin and death in the end of the world. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 for instance, it was given us hope of love, the hope of the Redeemer. In Genesis chapter 12 for instance, it was given the hope of eternal life upon the earth and an inheritance. You see, these promises promised life and they became light in the darkness. In the prevailing darkness that would have prevailed because of sin and death. Yahweh's word, promising life, became the light of men. So the people that received that word could see where they were going. They had the path marked out before them that would lead to life, ultimately, in the kingdom of God. And so that word, Yahweh's word, his promises, became the light that could enlighten men's minds in the darkness of the world. In verse 5 he says, And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The word comprehend, there is a word which means to lay hold on, to destroy, or to overcome. You see, the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness overcame it not. Now we look back to the history of the world, a history of darkness. But the light has not been destroyed. The light of God's truth has not been destroyed. And even to this very day in this dark world in which we live, that light is still there, still shining forth. And so the darkness did not destroy the light. In verse 6, the Lord uh, John introduces us to the work of John the Baptist who introduced the Lord Jesus Christ to, 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 to the nation of Israel. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came to a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. So you see, here's the work of John now. John, he says, was sent as a witness to bear witness of the light so that all men through him might believe. And he says he was not that light. Now in John chapter 5 and verse 32, we read that, 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 that John was a light. John chapter 5 verse 32 There is another that beareth witness of me and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Ye sent unto John and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. He says, but I have a greater witness than that of John. And so he says here that John was a burning and a shining light. And the words that John uses there only refer to a lamp, a hand lamp. That's all John was, just a, just a hand lamp, who was bearing witness to a far greater light that was soon to be manifested. And it was John's work to prepare men's minds to receive that greater light that was to come after him. And in verse 9 we read, That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Because this is the light that John was introducing and witnessing to. He was a little hand man, witnessing to the coming of the true light. And the word true there means the genuine light, the real light, as opposed to the word true that is used in the book of Hebrews, showing how the tabernacle was just a shadow of the true tabernacle. You see, the genuine one. <coughs> and as John was just a, a, a little lamp, shadowing forth, witnessing to the coming of the true, real, genuine light. And that real, true, genuine light was a light that could be relied upon. It was a light that would, would give, <coughs> enable people to see clearly 
and a light that could be trusted and relied upon. Now in verse 10, John reverts to the type of world into which the true light comes. Again, again we, it should, verse 10 should read in the new agenda. It was in the world. And the world was made by it. And the world knew it not. The word for world there in these places is the word cosmos. It means the order or the arrangement of things. And obviously what John is referring to is the Jewish order of things. Because it was into the Jewish world that the true light came. It was into the Jewish world that the Lord Jesus Christ was introduced and manifested. You see, he says, and it was in the Jewish world, and the Jewish world or arrangement was brought into existence by it. And it and, and the, the Jewish order or world knew or understood it not. That's what it's saying, you see. You see, the, that, the nation of Israel was brought into existence and was founded upon the principles of divine light. Right in the very beginning of their formation of a nation, Yahweh gave them his word and his law. He gave them light. And that, it was that light that brought that Jewish arrangement of things into existence. But they didn't understand it. They did not understand it. So that when the true light was manifested in their midst, they couldn't receive it because they didn't understand what the light really was. That's the tragedy that John said in before in verses 10 and 11. Here was an arrangement of things brought into existence by the word of God, by divine light. But that very arrangement of things didn't even understand the light that it had in its midst and that had brought it into existence. But in verse 11 we read, reading of the true light, it says, He came unto his own things and his own things received him not. You know, Here's the true light. The Lord Jesus Christ. He came unto his own things. His own kingdom. His own people. His own realm. People that should have accepted him as their king. But his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. But they rejected him. Because they didn't understand that light. In verse 12 he says, but as many as did receive him, to them gave him power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So whilst the nation at large rejected him, there were individuals who did receive him, and to them he gave power to become the sons of God. And that word power, the word ecclesia, a word which means a word which means power in the sense of freedom of movement. Freedom of action. Hence the right to act or authority. But literally it means freedom of action. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ removed every obstacle to their becoming sons of God. For those who received him, he gave them freedom of movement to become sons of God to as many as believed upon his name. That's what he's saying. You see, the nation at last rejected him and he rejected him. Sealed their own judgment and brought about their own rejection. But individuals who received him, for them he removed every obstacle to them becoming sons of God and being drawn into a right relationship with God. Verse 13, he says, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, James tells us, of his own will begat he us by the word of truth. It wasn't our will. It wasn't the will of man. 
but it was the will of God. For not of blood, not by fleshly means, but by a special extension of Yahweh's grace in beginning us by his word. That's what brings us into a relationship of sons of God and his Lord Jesus Christ, the true, genuine light that came into the world that made that possible. And then we come to verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, the logos, that which he's been speaking of from verse 1, that in which there was life and life. The logos was made, really could be rendered, became. The word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacle, among us, is how that could read. The Logos was made flesh, and, or the Logos became flesh, and tabernacled among us. You see, it's the word, the Logos. As Brother Thomas defined it, the outward form by which the inward thought is expressed and made known. Also, the inward thought or reason itself. You see, here's the, the outward form by which Yahweh has expressed his inward thoughts and made them known. That radiated forth from the Father, was sent forth by him. It radiated forth from him as light from him. And it found, it, it found reception in the Son. And finally, uh, and the son receiving that word into himself. That word found its full expression in him. And there was his, uh, uh, and, and that word was as it were. Dwelling in him as in a tent. And revealing the Father's glory in him. In the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, the apostle Paul writes, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, The two beings of brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. Here, of course, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, being the brightness of God's glory, and the express image of God's person. That word brightness, it's, uh, I think the revised version renders it as his folding. But according to Bullinger, it's a word that refers particularly to reflective light. If it was God's glory, not his, it was God's glory, the brightness of which could be seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was God's glory reflected. Just as if it off of a, of, of a glass or a brightly polished piece of metal. This has got a brightly polished piece of metal. We want it to reflect the light. That piece of metal has got to be turned towards that light. And as long as it's turned towards that light, that light will light it up with glory. If it's turned away from the light, the glory will disappear. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 14, said to Philip, He said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, what he was telling to it was, that if Philip had perceived the character manifesting in him, if Philip had understood the work that the Lord Jesus Christ had done, and the character that he had manifested, then Philip would have seen the Father. Because what he would have seen in the Lord Jesus Christ was the reflection of that light that went forth from the Father. And it was reflected in its perfection in the sun. So as he was, the brightness of his glory. You know, he was the brightness of his glory because he was never turned away from his father. He never turned away from his father. So often, when we sisters, we do turn away. And when we turn away from the father, the light can't be reflected from us. 
It's very easy to study the truth. It's very easy to turn away from the Father and to seek answers to problems and things ourselves by our own life. But it's when we turn and face the Father, it's when we look at what, what is exhibited in the Father, that that's when we understand the words of the truth. That's when the problems disappear. And that's when the glory of the Father can be developed in us. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of, son of, uh, son of Man, through Man, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, a weak mortal man, he displays the glory of the Father's hand because he received Yahweh's word. His face, as it were, always turned towards his Father. And with a full understanding of that word, and a full manifestation of that word, the Father's glory was developed in him and shone forth out of him. As John says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here in John chapter 1, John takes us back to the divine origin of that character and shows us how it was that we can look upon the Lord Jesus Christ and see the reflection of the Father's character. The Lord Jesus Christ was the brightness of the Father's glory. Is that glory reflected in us? That is the question in the fact. We must trace the, the origin of that character in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trace it back to the Word of God. Whether that character is developed in us or not, depends upon the attention that we give to that Word.